0: Great, so thanks everyone for joining us here today. My name is Danielle Greshak. I'm a manager within the partner solutions architecture team here at AWS. And I'm super excited to be here today um, and presenting with Ryan Peterson. Ryan is actually our global tech lead for our data and analytics uh, partner ecosystem. And uh, since Ryan joined AWS, he's actually been our resident expert on all things data privacy, data governance, GDPR, and et cetera. And so this concept that we're gonna be presenting Presenting today that I'm essentially going to introduce to you um, is about how to handle this with the use of deploying a de-identified data lake. So, uh, just to get started, um, and not to sort of kind of set context with a little bit of disturbing information, but the reality is is that your data here is in danger, and just in the time that we're going to be sitting here, just in this one hour. Almost 300,000 records will likely be compromised. Um, And this means that these records are gonna be out in the wild, 80% of them uh, likely to people with malicious intent with this data. And so that's why this data governance and data privacy is actually so important. And, you know, our customers have been talking to us and trying to understand, you know, what they, ha- they need to answer a myriad of questions around their data. And they need to think about, you know, where- what is the centralized location for our data? Um, where am I gonna store it? What are the things I have to worry about with uh, as far as this data being secured? What kind of responsibility do I have to my, consum- my customers and the consumers? Um, And, of course, they also want to know, what are some of the use cases for processing this data? What can I do with it? Can I share it? Can I do some analytics on it? Um, And these are all things that our customers are actually thinking about, and they're looking to us to get some help with. Um, And so, you know, I actually come from a software development background. I spent many years actually working in e-commerce retail sites, and, you know, we were very excited to capture as much data as we could from our customers, especially 15, 20 years ago. And a lot of the reason was we wanted to create this personalized experience, and we needed to know about our customers in order to do that. Um, But that actually would have, as we started to worry about the data that we were capturing, we had a lot of challenges um, in the software development lifecycle. If you think about it, when you're going to create a staging environment or a test environment, um, you need to sort of recreate what you have in production. But if you're just copying production data back into your test environment, that actually has a lot of danger. You can have internal bad actors who have access to that data. You can accidentally just expose it. Um, and, And these are things that we had to start thinking about as data security and data privacy became more of an issue. However, if we needed to then seed our database with data, all of a sudden, that really slows down the development life cycle, and we really had a hard time actually recreating a lot of the environments that we needed to with scalability um, and also just being able to ha- recreate the data that we're going to have from our customers and what it's really going to look like. But that being said, we also had to think about um, external bad actors. So we had to think about protecting our endpoints from DDoS. We had to also think about things like SQL injection and cross-site scripting, and then also brute force attacking. So we were slowed down in our development process by needing to think about all of these dangers that are out there with the data. Um, And so years ago, the way that, uh, especially like retail sites or any kind of applications, what they'd think about um, in order to handle this uh, sensitive data You know, first and foremost, she thought about, well, I'm going to outsource my credit card processing. Um, I'm going to use a third-party provider that does this for me, and I won't store any credit card data, which is a good solution for that. Um, If we had to copy back data from production, we would mask that data, try to take out any identifying information. But that was actually a lot of work on our part in order to do that. Um, Our network security people would think about the firewall rules, and they would really focus on perimeter access, um, which of course made sense. But um, as you know, with the cloud, that makes things more challenging today. Um, And then of course, we would think about database encryption. So we would encrypt certain records, certain rows, certain tables, if they happen to have specific identifiable information in there. Um, Some of our security people would also put in alerting to say like, okay, who has access to certain areas of the data? And that would also help with um, the, uh, the location of what kind of the, the blast radius, let's say. And then, of course, over time, as DevOps became more of a um, more used solution, we would have SSH. We would have certain environments that would be completely automated, so SSH was never not, no longer uh, an available way to log into systems to get data. And of course, we'd always do some validation in the testing process to make sure our data inputs and outputs were sanitized, Um, just to make sure that data as it was coming in and going out of the system actually looked like it should. Um, But think about how a de-identified data lake would actually help. And you know, when, when in the summertime, when we started thinking about ideas for presentations at reInvent, this is one that um, you know, Ryan came up with, and I just thought, gosh, this really solves so many challenges that a lot of application developers have, that a lot of uh, companies who just are concerned about what their exposure is um, really has. And it allows developers to focus on high-quality software, and then it also protects companies and their reputation. Um, and make sure that this data is not exposed to bad actors. Um, And and I guess you might be sitting here thinking, like, why is this really important? Um, Well, as you can see by this little eye chart that's on the screen here, these are all of the regulatory bodies that are now uh, making us think more and more about data privacy through the regulations and the requirements that they're putting in place for companies today. Um, obviously, you can see there in the lower right, GDPR is the one that is kind of you know, top of most people's minds. But there are others that are out there that um, you know, also will have requirements for us to fulfill these compliance requirements. And so you can see that things have changed in the last you know, 10, 15 years, where it used to be that there were just certain, certain directives that you wanted to follow. But now there are actually laws that are requiring you to have certain uh, controls in place. It used to be best practices and good, good ethics would force you to think about the data that you were collecting and how you are securing it. But now there's actually regulatory requirements here that you have to think about. Um, Finally, it it used to be like, yes, you might have some reputational um, impact, but there really weren't consequences. Now there actually are heavy fines associated with data breaches. Uh, GDPR specifically, I believe, and Ryan will speak to this, it's 4% or something. I'll let him kind of give you the details on that. But these are fines that can actually put you out of business. Um, And then finally, it's something that we would think of as overhead nice to have in our applications years ago, Um, but now these things have to actually be part of the initial design, and they are, you know, ingrained in the applications, and you have to start thinking about it that way. So with that, I'm going to actually turn it over to Ryan now, and he's going to go through this concept of the de-identified data lake.
1: Thanks, Danielle. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing today? First day, everyone's kind of tired from traveling. Uh, So um, so what Danielle talked about is I I came into Amazon. I said, you know, there's this this data privacy issue. And 4% of your annual global revenue is a pretty big impact. I don't know of a lot of companies that can survive that. Uh, And then I started talking to customers. And the first thing that they said was, well, I don't do business in Europe. So I don't really need to care about this. Uh, Well, do you have Europeans in your database? Actually, I do. Well, then you need to worry about it. Then the CCPA came out and you said, well, hey, uh, California now has to deal with it, so if you're doing business in the US and you don't have any California in your system, you're probably gonna have to deal with that as well. So this, this, uh, this idea became a problem and so, well, how do you solve that issue? Uh, you can do things like, I wanna identify every single individual in this room. And, uh, you have to tell me where you're from and give me details about what particular architecture you wanna fall under, do you wanna fall under GDPR? Do you, what if you're a French national living in California? How do I handle you? Right? So these, these issues became more and more and more complicated, and I started saying, well, how do we solve this? This is going to be really complicated to solve. So what we all realized was that all of these issues, these bad actors, uh, external hackers, they're all looking for the same thing, was the PII. Access to the PII is the problem. So all arrows pointed at PII as the issue, which means that root cause analysis of this issue is collecting PII. Now, I don't know, but most of your companies have to collect PII in some way, right? You've you got to do business. You've got to ship someone a product. Uh, You've got to talk to the CEO of a company and put them in Salesforce. There's a lot of different uh, uh, reasons for collecting information. So collecting is, is a hard problem to solve. So, okay, let's, let's assume that for a second we're not going to deal with a collection issue. Let's put that aside. What about proliferating that data now? Does it have to go into the data lake? If that's the next big re- repo where everything gets collected, everything gets put into the data lake, it doesn't necessarily need to make its way into the data lake. So what if we could stop and halt the proliferation of PI throughout the environment and ultimately out to an output? So we went to the best place I could imagine is Amazon. Went to Amazon.com site, I started talking to data scientists in, in Amazon. I said, how are you guys handling data privacy? I said, we're, we're, we d- that's number one, right? Data security is number one well, how do your your data scientists work on things like figuring out what people want to read when they're looking at Kindle, for example? So, well, we don't know who the person is. We de-identify them. And so it just hit me. De-identify data lake. That's what Amazon does. It's what really everyone should be thinking about doing. How do we de-identify the data so that all those analysts can get the work done and not have to worry about the risk of holding that PII? So this looks like a big eye chart, and it is. I don't suggest that every single piece on here you need, based on your environment, you may need some of it, uh, but I want to kind of give you an idea of we, we, we got some partners together and we said, well, if we need to solve these different challenges of managing PII, I love all the cameras, click, 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 <laughs> If we're going to handle all the, uh, the challenges of PII, what are those challenges and how do we, so going back to that, that list of questions that Danielle talked about we got from customers, some of those questions were things like, where is my data? Which, which ones of those things have PII in them? That first question, if you can't handle the question about a catalog, have a catalog information of where it exists and, and what's being done with it, who's using it, that kind of high-level basic question, that should freak you out a little bit. Just a little bit. It freaked me out a little bit. But yet at the same time, I guess that uh, 80 plus percent of companies out there don't yet have a data catalog. Now the second thing became, well, I can handle that, If I start writing data though to a landing zone, I I push, I've been saying this for years as a big data guy, push all the data into a data lake and you'll get lots of great value. And uh, with great value comes great responsibility, I think is the, the term. And that great responsibility is we need to start collecting and pulling the data out during that transformation process. When you ETL data from that source and you get it into the data lake, let's take a step there and say, you know what? Let's just block PII from getting into the environment because you'll de-risk all of that downstream that comes out of the data lake is now de-risked. Then we said, well, how do we handle second-party data? And full disclosure, I used to work for Data Republic, and we were working on this when I was there, and I said, you know what? You guys really ought to to help deal with this issue. So second-party data transfers, how do you get information from one point to another party? Here's a challenge with that. Everyone has their badges. I don't have mine because I'm presenting. Look at the back of your badge. What do you guys see?
0: The black cards.
1: The black cards. It's a consumer collection statement. And that is where most of this journey starts. We have a consumer collection statement on there because of things like GDPR. Are there any Europeans in the house?
0: <laughs>
1: a few? Okay, great. So GDPR says, well, we need to know that I'm giving you my data, and I need to know where you're taking it to. Who else are you getting it to? Well, if you swipe your badge this week with a vendor, and that vendor is a European vendor is a vendor out of Australia, is a vendor out of, that information may float to one of those locations, and so we're doing that consumer collection statement on the back. When you send information, though, from party A to party B, second party use, we've seen a couple of big um, bad scandals in the news about people using someone else's data. What are the rules around that? What are the laws? Is there legal compliance? Are you following all the regulatory requirements? In GDPR, that's something called chapter five. Anybody read GDPR all the way through? <laughs> I didn't think so. I've read it a couple times through, and after that, you're like, okay, please get me a drink. So, so GDPR Chapter 5 is about that second-party transfer, and you have to deal with that as well, so we brought uh, Data Republic into the mix. But the, the actual de-identification element of this, uh, we worked with a company called Data Guys, and Data Guys does masking, 40-plus different kinds of ways to mask. I'll talk about each of these parts in a little bit more detail. But this architecture, if you strip away those elements of data governance from it, it looks exactly the same as a data lake. All we're really doing is throwing on a couple of partner components to take our building blocks and enhance them and make them a little bit more uh, governed, secure, controlled. Make sense? Okay. So let's talk a little bit about data catalog. We chose Zaloni for the first iteration of this. Zaloni is a a data catalog company, um, although I think they would more argue that they're a uh, data market. Um, In the end, so, So what data is valuable to me? This is the question that was asked on that first screen. Uh, How do I use the data for business value? And how do I understand document and ensure proper usage? So Article 30 of GDPR is about getting the information and knowing what what you're using it for so you can give that back to the regulators. So you have to make sure you know who's using it, who's got access to that data, and what are they using it for, the permitted use of that data. So data catalogs today are things like peer data catalogs just throw a bunch of information, get a bunch of metadata, put it into a space, or they're embedded in some sort of application. So you might have an EDW data catalog or a data lake da- catalog or just a catalog of your uh, of a particular data set. What we really want is a marketplace, all of the data that exists within your environment, data that is yours, that you control, data that you're using from someone else. If You work for a bank, for example, you're probably getting information from bureaus, When that information comes in from bureau, how do you manage that separately, potentially then from your regular data? And you've gotta be able to have that whole state. So the future state is all the information exists in a market where your data stewards and your data consumers who are actually using the content can go and search through all the data. So it looks a little bit like this. RDBMSs, data lakes, EDWs, file systems, data catalogs, any other information that might exist around your data assets, flow up into a discovery system, into the catalog. Catalog now can manage all of that. Within that data management framework, there's an ability to do data transformations, uh, change things in the actual environment, and then start applying permissions and make that data discoverable to those data consumers. So Zaloni has a few interesting uh, solutions to it. One is that catalog process we talked about. Another one is an ingestion capability to bring data in. Adding to that, they have a workflow designer, so the ability to see kind of that lineage of traffic that goes from a source system all the way out to a report or someone who's using that content. Token masking integrated into their solution. They have the ability to collaborate with other users. So you want to build a project and have a bunch of users get the same permissions, have the data steward control who's going to see that information, it's all there, and ultimately then share that back out. Uh, for uh, uses like Tableau to be able to, to look at the content and visualize it in some way. If you look at kind of the holistic view of what Zoloni offers. There's that enablement, that governance and engagement. Uh, everything from data lineage and quality to uh, auto discovery of content and changes. and I think it's also really important to tell you that uh, for people who asking the question in their minds, what about Glue? Well, Zaloni integrates with Glue, makes it so that if Glue is the place where you're bringing all of that data in from all of your Amazon sources, then they'll synchronize with that content to make sure that that's available in that catalog. So on data guys, we have the ability to detect, uh, protect, monitor, uh, figure out access to the data, and create a right to erasure. So right to erasure right to your- is the Article 17 uh, GDPR requirement that says, if somebody calls and says, I want my, de- my data deleted or no longer used, then you have to make it so that person can no longer be seen. With data guys, you can apply certain masking techniques to make it so that that person can never just be re- re-identified again. And this goes back to that de-identified data lake. How do you make it so that that information doesn't exist in the first place, and the users can only be seen if they could be re-identified based on their token? So the, the output from any particular project within a data lake, a de-identified data lake, is to get those tokens out find out who the token belongs to, and then ultimately get that information. That, that means that it's a two-step process. Someone is handling that token match, and someone else is handling the analysis. So to give you an idea of what that looks like, you might have a transcript. And it's may be uh, phone calls that are coming in. Says, uh says, um, in this particular case, C. Salazar, uh, Carlos Salazar. That's a, that's a name, right? So you want to call that out. We have a social security number. Zero, 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 00000000, don't think that one actually exists, I think we're okay. <laughs> if that is yours, let me know afterwards, I'll change the slide. Um, hopefully you don't have the one we replace it with, 666666666. Six, 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 six. Um, but one of the masking techniques that data guys can offer is to change things from something that's real to something that's also real, it just, it makes it so that it's no longer identifiable but back to a particular person. So in this case, Carlos becomes Jane. And in this case, social security number changes. In this case, it goes from Nevada to Texas. So we're changing pieces of PII to make it so that it can be used. You can do other things like hashing the data, so it's a one-way directional hash, it turns into a bunch of just garbly gook. I think is the technical term. Um, I put this in here because data guys actually showed me this, and, and it was, I was really excited about it. Does anybody have a call center in their company? A few of you. How do you handle audio? So I get a right to be forgotten request. You must delete my information. You cannot use it anymore. I have to delete the audio then of you calling in. How do I even know it was you? Now maybe I can delete portions of the audio so I still have information for training purposes and things. I have to then figure out a way to do that. So we figured out is like with things like Amazon Transcribe, you can take the audio and, and create a text file out of it and using that text file along with some time lineage. You can determine where someone said their name, their passcode, any, any other information they might exist when they called in, and then we can snippet out those pieces uh, with other technologies we offer. Data Republic we talked about a little bit. Uh, private design, they, they're all about uh, getting rid of the honeypot. So any of you that do matching between two companies, I'll give you an example, a uh, bank and an airline. You, you ever have an airline credit card? or a hotel credit card. Well, how do you create a connection between those two organizations? The way it's been done in the past is that information uh, was sent to a organization to do matching, a place, like a honeypot, where the matching was done, and then you would get a list out of A equals B. So what, what they came up with is a concept called decentralized matching, so taking the best of blockchain-esque technology, decentralized uh, internet. Anybody watching Hyde Piper, the decentralized internet? So uh, that decentralized Internet concept of of, of starting out pieces of data so that it doesn't exist in one place. So you tokenize the data. Data comes in. Okay, it's, it's a name, a phone number, et cetera. You get all that. You push it off to the side. And when you replace it with a token, just some arbitrary number that's made up, it's no longer an identifier. So inside of your data lake is this token ID plus the attributes of information for that person maybe it's all the credit card spend they've had, maybe it's all the times they've set at a hotel, etc. is now equal to A, B, C, D, E. Just some arbitrary number. They hash, then, the PII. So let's use my name, Ryan. Ryan becomes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. They slice that data up. So the 1, then the 2, then the 3, then the 4, then the 5. They ship it out to these different places so that it doesn't exist in one place anymore. You're hashed already which means you can't identify the person from the hash, then the hash is split, sliced. And that's shipped across all these different decentralized nodes. And then you can match against all of these decentralized nodes, and you end up with false positives in the environment. By having the false positives integrated, it means that you can do full matching without having to worry about reidentification of the person, which means now you no longer have a centralized honeypot that is being matched between parties but in a global context. They provide governance of the exchange of data. So we talked about that legal compliance. If I'm shipping data from my place to another place, what's the legal agreement between those? Some bigger companies have that integrated. They'll have like a, a policy or a process for how you transfer and ship data to another party. They have that integrated into the solution. So this is what I was talking about. In the old way of handling it, you had the centralized honeypot. All the information came in. Uh, I take the first names, the last names, all of this just in open context. All of your PI being shipped out to some company. And the challenge with that is, is the metadata that comes from it. So if you're a bank and I send over a bunch of information about my consumers, that in itself is pretty powerful information. If you know every single person that, work, that, that does banking business with me and you work with another bank, what's the chance that maybe an internal bad actor might take that information and give it to the other bank? very valuable information. Who you bank with and maybe what you do with that banking. So by going to this decentralized model where no no single person has access and knows who who you're doing business with or even how many people you have, it gives you the ability to do that in a much more secure way. So this is that step, the process of how that works. You take information from your organization, customer database, for example. There's an on-premises node. The personal information gets into the contributor node goes out to the decentralized network. The decentralized network does all the matching. All the false positives as well as the the positive positives end up going back out to this thing called an aggregator node. The aggregator node creates the list of A equals B. Then you use that as the match table so that when you transfer information about your data to someone else, so the bank now sends the information to the airline, when the airline gets it, they don't see what the bank's ID was. You send that natural key of one, well, the airline's natural key of two comes up on the screen. And it makes, so you can do this data transfer completely data-defined. Nobody knows what your information or anything about that information is, but you're still able to transfer the attributes. The person stayed here this many times, they flew this many flights, they bought these things that ultimately should get points, etc. So wrapping that all into a single program uh, was the last element of this. So I have all these different components And what I don't wanna have is three different places where I have to manage things. I want my ETL team to be able to continue to do ETL. I'm gonna introduce a new acronym today, say ETDL, right? So extract, transform, de-identification, then load. And so we started talking to, at Leap, about this concept of governed ETL. How do you do that governance during the transformation process? so they worked with all the partners that you see on the screen to make it so that from the ETL solution you can do all that tokenization all of that sending the data between different parties so what what's special about atleap is that most of your ETL providers are an installation of a piece of software and they're really a SaaS based solution so it makes it uh, less about a developer having to do the work and much more about a particular uh, any business user can go and say i need the data shipped over to here i need to do these things by doing that means that every one of your users can be a part of the privacy process. By making it so that you can de identify the information, a user can click and say, that's a first name column, we're going to have that de identified. And whatever the policy is that DataGuys, for example, has put in place to make it so that that gets masked, gets hashed, gets encrypted, whatever the rule is, will automatically get applied then to that transformation. Whatever data then lands, wherever it lands, has been de identified using the same process that the company has decided they want to use. So this is what that kind of looks like today. The, the, the current process is I've got source data. I land it in S3. Uh, Redshift then takes it to, trans, you know, into their system and ultimately has its destination table. Let people finish clicking. And we're not talking about a big change here. We're just simply saying that during that transformation process, let's just include the identification so that everything downstream, that very first step coming out of your source data protects you. And the second step is I want to load. I want to use it. I want to consume it. Every single analyst is now working on this data set. They're finding information out about a person without knowing who the person is, which means I can still do things like turn analysis. I, can, I have yet to find a report, and I would be happy to talk to anybody after this who could tell me this is a report that I run that I have to have the PII in my data environment in order to do it. So far, I found that every single body, everyone will think about it and they go, you know, I don't need it. I don't have to have the PI. I can handle every single output that I would need to handle. So today we're seeing is that with that loop involved, they're doing that work. They're also involved in the data curation process and getting it ultimately into the same environment. So I'll close out on the same slide I started with. Um, There's a few other components in here I wanted to call, call out. If you want to run SageMaker to do some predictive analysis insights on your data nothing changes. You wanna look at things like, how many widgets do I need to predict to purchase next month? The widget count is still there even if you don't know who bought the widgets. So I can still push that information through to SageMaker and still get great insights. Uh, Athena, being able to access the data on S3 so you can, you can look at the content, nothing changes. It's just that your users now, instead of seeing John Smith, Jane Doe, they're gonna see ABCD as the identifier of that person and you're no longer able to figure out exactly who that person is. So uh, we'll see this architecture expand, we'll see people be able to swap out different components for certain elements, but we think this is going to be the future of stopping the proliferation of content to get from one side to the other. I'm talking very fast, I realized. Her. Yep. We can keep talking. Um,
0: well, I want to do a quick shameless plug, actually. Uh, so one of the things that our team here at AWS and, and Ryan specifically has driven is um, in our competency program, which really talks about uh, it, it. it is a place where we showcase partners that excel in specific areas and in data anal- and analytics is one that, that Ryan specifically owns. And uh, we ha- he has added in a section on data governance. Many of the partners who are here uh, and, and highlighted in this architecture are part of that. Um, I think we expect to have consulting partners also who really excel in this space um, to be featured in the data governance section of our competency program. So if you're out there and you're looking for solutions in this space, the competency, our competency partners uh, for data governance is a good place to start. And, and like I said, many of these partners are, are highlighted here.
1: Yeah. I, I will mention a couple of things just to throw out. There's other pieces of the architecture I can spend a couple minutes on just to add one more time. Um, so video and images uh, is, is a great space. Uh, taking content off of, a, off of an image and figuring out that there's PII there, which there's a couple already, right? So you have a definition of looking at a face. You may need to mask that by either deleting the image or blurring it in some way so you can't tell who the person is. Um, You also have, like, things like an MRI where the doctor writes on it, other hand writes on it, or it's typewritten. They call it a DICON header. Uh, So that information also is something that you might find. So the concept here is we take information from those unstructured files get them into a landing zone, have the landing zone audit to make sure that it doesn't have any of that content. And then using machine learning, we can actually figure out if it doesn't have any, just have it push up straight through into the data lake. And um, if it does, we'll pause it and we'll have somebody manually look at it and add to the, the learning algorithm. So if you find that, hey, this is something that the system couldn't catch, then we're gonna, we're gonna pause and not have it go into the data lake. Um, processing side, whether it's uh, Amazon EMR or some sort of uh, compute cluster, Again, you can use that just as you would a regular data lake, whether or not you had PII or not. Um, talk about uh, the use of Elasticsearch for searching for content, or we talked about SageMaker QuickSight for viewing, analyzing, the, or visualizing the content. You still use all of that. Um, Weblogs. Uh, I was going to do a, a quick survey, but if I was to say first name is a PII field, you guys would all say...
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs> um,
1: if I said uh, um, social security number, you would say, "Of course, yes." What about IP address?
0: Yeah.
1: It's amazing, isn't it? IP address. Now think about all the solutions that collect information about an IP address: web logs, IDSs, data uh, uh, inflow, J, you know, Jflow on, on, your, uh, on your switching infrastructures.
0: If you're, yeah, con- it, if you're capturing
1: that content, it's. Something you have to think about how you de-identify.
0: And not to jump in, but one of the things Ryan and I were discussing before we did this presentation is how PII has changed over time. Um, again, I, I worked in e-commerce in the 90s, and all we really thought we had to take care of was credit cards, and maybe if we were collecting social security numbers, which we'd never do, but credit cards, that's what we cared about. Over time, like, so many things have are now PII that 20 years ago we didn't worry about proliferating that data at all, so.
1: I'll spend, I'll spend one minute on um, on one thing that, that is coming out as the next thing to, to worry about, to think about. And so we, we know about PIs, kind of obvious, so first name, last name, now IP address, and other things that you could ultimately identify an individual with. Anybody heard of re-identification risk? Okay, it's good, there's actually a lot of people in the room that know about re-identification risk. Re-identification risk says, uh, I may not have enough information about a person as far as their PII, may not directly know who you are. If I knew geo-coordinate data on your cell phone, you think I could figure out who you were? Pretty quick, right? I just look at where do you sleep every night and then do some quick math and do a lookup on a, on a street address and say, oh, who owns the house? Okay, then I know who you are. And I can re-identify you based on that information. Re-identification risk is the one sort of, like, problem out there that you have to manage really, really closely. And what I mean by that is whoever your data stewards are, whoever you put into that role, need to understand that with the information that they give to someone, whether it includes personal information or not, they have to stop and think, hang on, am I giving someone information that can ultimately re-identify the user? Now, in GDPR, they kept this out. They said, okay, we're not gonna gonna worry about re-identification risk. That's a really hard problem to solve. We're just gonna say, hey, don't do it. It's against against the rules, (laughs) don't re-identify people. Uh, But from a technologically perspective, you can't really Really solve it that easily. In the CCPA, however, in the California rules, California has actually said that re-identification is also going to be a fine. So if you can't stop re-identification and somebody does re-identify a user uh, based on some elements of information, then that's also against the rules. So just keep in mind that as you start going through the process of building out your governance infrastructure, or if you're a SI and you're wanting to start doing this for customers, think about how you... Um, communicate inside of those organizations to help them understand that here's how you can deal with information from the source going forward and then here's how you handle identification risk. It's probably going to be a bit of policy, a bit of managing uh, people, and a bit of putting the right technologies in place. So, um, I will close out on this is uh, get a catalog. Make sure that there's a catalog in place for all your data. Have a methodology to audit. Um, if you haven't looked at an Article 30 a report from gdpr. It's a good one to start with kind of get an idea of all the things that they're going to ask for if they ever do come knocking uh, Thirdly when you do that you're going to increase and, and accelerate value You can if you don't have to worry That an analyst has information they can go do their, their job You don't have to worry about what they might use or misuse it for you can do more things faster um, You'll reduce the risk of second-party misuse Like we've seen in the, the news you're not paying attention to, it it can hurt you. Uh, and ultimately, if you do all of these things and you start by really thinking about putting privacy first, you increase the trust you have with your customers, you're going intre- to increase your employee trust, shareholder trust, and you'll increase your revenues. Make sense? So I want to leave it with this. Uh, three, at least, of the partners I've talked about here are, to- are here today in the room, and I appreciate them coming and all of you coming. Uh, they're going to go hang out in the corner. If anybody has questions about uh, any of those solutions, feel free to go spend some time with them. And we have a few more minutes left in the the, uh, session so we can spend some time talking to them afterwards. Thank you guys very much for your time today.